0: Hello, we've got another episode of It's in the Experience for you, an original podcast produced by the Association for Experiential Education. I'm Sherry Bagley, Executive Director of AEE and your host. Today's guests play big volunteer roles here at AEE, and I'm looking forward to our chat as we discuss their career paths, their research, and their volunteer roles here at AEE. Joanna Bettman Schaefer is a professor at the University of Utah College of Social Work and a licensed clinical social worker. She received her BA with honors from Dartmouth College, her MSW from the University of Utah, and her PhD from Smith College School for Social Work. Dr. Schaefer has received numerous honors and serves as clinical faculty in the University of Utah Department of Psychiatry and has an appointment in the Salt Lake City Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. She worked as field staff, therapist, director, and researcher in wilderness therapy and residential treatment settings for more than 20 years. She has also worked as a clinical social worker and served as a social worker for the American Red Cross response to Hurricane Katrina. Dr. Schaefer's research focuses on nature's impact on mental health, wilderness therapy, residential treatment, and attachment. She's the editor in chief of the Journal of Experiential Education. W. Thomas Means is an assistant professor in the recreation management and recreational therapy department at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse and is a certified therapeutic recreation specialist. He is also the director of Indiana University-Indianapolis Camp Brocious Summer Family Camp. Dr. Means completed his BS in kinesiology from Indiana University-Purdue University-Indianapolis, MS in therapeutic recreation at UW-La Crosse, and Ph.D. in Leisure Behavior with a concentration in College Pedagogy from Indiana University. Before his current academic appointment, he worked in a variety of settings, including camps for people with developmental and intellectual disability, residential behavioral health, City of Eugene, Oregon's Adaptive Recreation Services, and as a recreational therapist at IU's Bradford Woods. His professional service currently includes co-chair of the Education Committee for AEE, Board of Directors of the Academy of Leisure Sciences and co-chair of the American Therapeutic Recreation Association's Research Institute. Tommy and Joanna, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you, Sherry. It's great to be here.
2: It's a
0: pleasure to be here. Those were some very storied and (laughs) long, amazing bios that you both have. You both have earned doctorates and work in residential therapy and the therapeutic session. But do you think there are other things that you all might have in common?
1: Sure. I I think there is. Let's see, where should we start? (laughs) I love plants. Plants has become a big hobby of mine. So I've done a lot of plants recently indoors, not outdoors, a lot of indoor stuff.
2: Yes, I'm an enormous plant lover. I think professionally, we also have a lot of overlap in terms of using outdoor spaces to work with populations. I think you've done some focus on kind of family work and adaptive settings for folks with disabilities in outdoor spaces and in camp spaces, and I've done other kinds of work in outdoor spaces mental health therapy and outdoor spaces, things like that. But I think we have a lot of overlap in terms of using the outdoors as a space to work with populations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mine started indoors just with a volunteer program, but quickly became an, an outdoor thing. After hearing the bio, it always sounds weird to hear all those things when I think of myself. So I just, like, I'm just the camp guy. I just, I've worked at camps. <laughs> and hear all the things. But yeah, a lot of outdoor things in different ways from residential Week long camps to short burst to treatment programs at Bradford Woods. So yes, definitely some commonalities there.
2: And I think also the other thing that occurs for me, Sherry, when you give us that nice compliment about like, oh, look at all those things you've done is I'm 52. Those things took me a long time. So <laughs> I think that for somebody hearing this who thinks, oh, I'm 22 and I can't do those things. Yeah, you absolutely can. So some of it is a function of time. I think it's also a function of privilege. I've been lucky enough to go to a lot of educational institutions and found funding to do that. And I've had an enormous amount of privilege that's brought me to this particular moment. And all of my social identities, I think, are a piece of that. My particular path in life and all of the things I've been able to accomplish are in part because of the power and privilege that I hold and have held in the world.
1: Yeah, that's a great perspective, which I I can second to. I just hearing those things definitely it takes time and I think as I talk a little bit maybe about my story coming from a camp counselor to a camp director to into the academic world it takes time to put into those things so if people are on that path you can get there just keep chugging along and all of a sudden you end up with a bio that sounds like that yeah and I think also incredibly privileged as a first gen student a lot of the mentors and folks that I had and the path that led me back to education and through some of these programs and different degrees. Super fortunate for the position to be in in privilege in some of those ways and so privileged to have the mentors and folks that I did with a lot of interesting AEE connections too, I think.
0: Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions for you all is what drove you to keep pursuing degrees to finally get your doctorate to do that? Was there a a specific thing that you were trying to accomplish? Was there a person that was maybe mentoring you and and telling you you could do it? What was the impetus behind that?
2: I think for me, when I finished my bachelor's, I had no intention at all of pursuing an advanced degree. And then when I found my way really by accident into a field staff position in wilderness therapy, largely really to keep up with my older brother, who is always doing something cooler and better than whatever it was I was doing. And when I had spent a few years working in wilderness therapy, I found that I really wanted to know more than I did about the populations we were working with. And because my undergraduate degree is in English, not in psychology, I really had no theories, no ways to understand the real deep distress of the populations that we were working with in wilderness therapy. And so that's what drove me to get my master's. And then when my master's in social work was over in two years, I thought, wait, that's it? There's still more I want to know. <laughs> really, as soon as my master's was over, I went into full-time practice as a therapist in wilderness therapy, but I immediately began planning, when can I begin a doctoral program? Because there was more I wanted to know, more I wanted to understand about the people that we worked with. And I had zero intention of going into academia. My father is in academic medicine. Hi, Dad. And uh, (laughs) it's just not a life that I envisioned for myself in academics. And I thought that I would just be a clinician. I would be a clinical social worker and have a greater, deeper understanding, hopefully, of the populations we worked with. But when I was working on my doctorate, and I don't know, Tommy, if you had this experience as well, they always encourage you to teach and you have to do research. Right. And doing those things, I discovered that I loved them. And that's really what brought me into the position I'm in now.
1: It's always great to hear other people's stories, especially those who have gone through a doctorate and suffered and enjoyed so much, the, especially the dissertation process, but to hear other folks' path is, is always great to hear. I think mine's kind of an interesting one, and maybe there's a couple of different drivers for my different degrees. So I went to college for a couple of years at Marshall University, studying art education. And had a great time that's back in the early two thousands when Marshall was really good at football, socially, I had a great time academically, not so great. So if that happened to you, I've got a couple blips on my, on my transcripts that aren't so great and that's okay. I took a six year break and I did a bunch of different odd jobs. I managed a convenience store that an uncle owned for a couple of years. I worked in a warehouse doing inventory and counting bags of starch in Indianapolis. I worked for my dad for a few years after he retired and started a little, little maintenance company in Indianapolis. So I was a fork truck mechanic and heavy machine mechanic for about two years until the recession hit in 2008. And I went back to school and was studying exercise science at IUPUI there in Indianapolis. And I was pre-physical therapy at the time. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I liked sports at one time and everything that I read said, go get a degree in exercise science and then study PT. And doing that, I thought it was great and it's really interesting things. I shadowed a couple of PT clinics and they were super interesting, but just not, I could just tell it wasn't maybe exactly for me. And one summer, I got an email about working at a camp for folks with disabilities. And during that time, I had volunteered for a program at IUPUI called the Motor Activity Clinic, which was working with kids with developmental disabilities in an adapted physical education program. It was associated with the class. I volunteered with the program and then became a staff member through a, a service learning program at IUPUI, which was super helpful. And Provided me some extra funds, which made navigating the undergraduate experience a little easier. And during that time, I also started volunteering and working at the math center. I was not strong in math. And when I went back to school, I had to take remedial math classes just to get myself back on track. So if you're not a math person, you can still get a doctorate degree. You just have to put in a little bit of extra work at the math center. And I started to really enjoy that. It was a cool program where you would take a class and you would come back in and you could mentor for it. Just that specific class, which was really awesome. Which maybe when I look back on it was a little bit of my early teaching kind of experience comes from that. So I, I mentored that and then I became the um, assistant director at the math center. So through that program, I got into the kind of thinking about teaching a a little bit, just that experience. And as I mentioned, when I went to work at that, or I got the email about working at a camp for folks with developmental disabilities, I thought, let's check it out. So I went and was a 27 year old camp counselor and all my peers were um, about 10 years younger than me which was fine. It worked out totally great. And that's where I learned a little bit about what recreational therapy was. And I loved the outdoors. I grew up doing all kinds of outdoor stuff on the river and camping. And that was our identity as a family growing up was just playing outside. I loved that and heard about recreational therapy. And that's what drew me to a master's degree. I didn't know that was a thing. I'm going to finish my bachelor's degree in exercise science and move into this recreational therapy world. So I did that. And when I was at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, my advisor was Steve Simpson, a longtime AEE guy. And when I was there, he mentored me in a variety of different ways. And we started thinking about a PhD a little bit after I was moved from a GA to a TA, I was one of the first TAs at UW lacrosse and got to teach a few of my own classes. During that same time, I was running a camp in Minnesota called Camp Winnebago, also for adults and children with developmental intellectual disabilities, severe to moderate, and became the program director there. And then ultimately the co-director. During that time, I really got into training. So training staff, we had a lot of international staff. So doing a lot of our our two weeks of training before the camp started and really loved that experience. I thought maybe this training stuff and working at the math center and doing some mentoring there and teaching this class, this college life, this college professor life might be cool. And I still have my summers off and I can still practice and do some outdoor stuff. So that's what kind of led me to IU and an assistantship with Bradford Woods. It was just perfect. And a great colleague of mine who, Is at IU now teaching. Jordan McIntyre, she was going to do her PhD at the same time. And we thought, okay, if you're going to do it, I'll do it. And we jumped and took the path there. And it was just great.
0: That's awesome. Thanks for sharing those stories. You both mentioned different kinds of therapy. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more, Joanna, on what wilderness therapy is for our audience listening. And then tell me what recreation therapy is because. There's a lot of therapy out there, and there's a lot of links between therapy and experiential education, but just for a little more information, Joanna, what's your definition
2: of wilderness therapy? That's a great question. So wilderness therapy is mental health therapy that's generally delivered in a wilderness environment, and that environment really varies out west. We have these gorgeous enormous deserts with very few structures and few people and just these massive ecosystems that really are largely uninhabited by other people. In the east, where some of these spaces are, they're smaller, more forested areas, but still outdoor and wild. And a lot of it involves a group process, so a group usually moving nomadically through wilderness space and a lot of kind of learning communication skills and working through challenges and daily living related to weather or hiking or whatever it is that comes up. When I started working in wilderness therapy, that was a treatment just for adolescents, nearly all of whom had some kind of substance use disorder, as well as usually other issues. Oppositionality, fighting with people, getting in trouble with people in authority lots of times depression anxiety trauma histories that left them with some serious wounds a whole kind of range of issues and usually comorbid layer upon layer of issues this treatment wilderness therapy has been generalized now young adults there are a number of young adult programs that work with folks in an outdoor space and many of those programs provide what looks like fairly traditional therapy one-on-one mental health therapy provided by somebody with a master's or a clinical degree in social worker psychology or marriage and family therapy, but also a lot of group work and a lot of family work is typically parts of these programs. Thank you.
0: Tommy, what's your definition of recreation therapy?
1: Yeah, this is one we teach early on because we hear recreational therapy or sometimes referred to as therapeutic recreation is, is certainly one of these discovery degrees. One of the big kind of running jokes with rec therapists is, how did you find rec therapy? Because there's always an interesting story in there, stumbling across the accidentally working at a camp when you're 27 or, or something like that. My definition of it, which aligns, I think, with our professional organizations, is the intentional use of recreation or leisure to enhance the well-being of people with disabilities, disease, illness, or some life circumstance. So it's the clinical practice of assessing clients, planning specifically for them, implementing a program, and evaluating it. And the wonderful thing about our field is the capacity to work in so many different environments. For me, a lot of my experience has been at camps in outdoor settings, which sometimes there's some overlap, not overlap, but some interesting spaces that exist between what recreational therapy is and what wilderness therapy is. And sometimes on some of those trips, there might be treatment teams where there's the, the clinical social worker and then a rec therapist also working side by side as we do different things what we do is we assess a client and find out what their needs are, just like any other therapy. And then we use recreation and, and leisure as our modalities. One example that I use is a program that we ran at Bradford Woods, which was a climbing program for adolescents that were struggling in a variety of different ways. Bradford Woods is located in Martinsville, Indiana, which is a, an area where there's not a lot of opportunity for young people. We wanted to work with kids to try to increase self-determination is what we knew was a, an area that was of need. And the modality that we used was rock climbing. and um, We started a climbing club. And the idea wasn't to teach kids to climb. It was to enhance and grow in self-determination through this medium of this modality of, of rock climbing. And they didn't know how to rock climb before. And then at the end of the program, hopefully they knew how to rock climb. And if they became rock climbers, awesome. Or if they just said, I want to go on to mechanic school, but I don't know how to do that. I didn't know how to rock climb before, and I learned how to do that. So we took them through a program where it brought the group together. We did ground-based activities and trust activities. Then we climbed at Bradford Woods on some of their outdoor components for a couple of weeks. Then we took them to an indoor climbing gym where they belayed and learned how to belay. The climbers will know there's a certain community that exists within climbing gyms to get them exposed to that. And then we took them for a a two-day, or weekend trip to the Red River Gorge in Kentucky and climbed outdoors and camped to do the full kind of experience as a culminating experience for them. And then processing through and evaluating if our clients met their individualized goals there was large goals that the program had and then each one had specific ones that's the really cool thing about it especially with the outdoor space but we also have a ton of therapists that work all over in a bunch of different areas long-term care facilities hospitals rehab hospitals schools children's hospital working with veterans a lot of folks work in vas community recreation and adapted inclusion programs also people work in corrections or on probation with folks. So a wide scope of settings and populations for people to work with using this. And it doesn't have to be rock climbing. It could be something more simple indoors, like using arts and crafts in some way. But sometimes there's scope of practice with everything. There are certain things that the physical therapists do and occupational therapists do. There's certain things that the art therapists do and the wilderness therapy folks do. So there's some interesting scopes of practice. And for us, it's that intentional use of recreation and leisure to help move a client along find out what they really love. Because when we know people are doing what they really love, they typically stick with those therapies a little bit longer. Going and moving through your exercises in PT and OT may not be super exciting, but if you get to come hang out with a rec therapist, we get you fitted for an adapted bike and go on a ride to the marsh. We may see some improvements in in some cardiovascular areas that they're doing their preferred activity.
0: And how would either of you classify adventure therapy then? Does adventure therapy fall? Is it the top layer and then wilderness therapy and rec therapy are part of those or separate. There seems to be so much overlap and so much so much similarities, obviously, in, in using those experiential education principles in all those things. But there's so many different areas now. Where does adventure therapy fall?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think adventure therapy is often understood as a big, broad umbrella under which a lot of sort of more specific kinds of therapies like wilderness therapy fall underneath. But I actually want to answer a different question. I want to respond to something (laughs) that that Tommy said, which is around if somebody loves that thing, that part of rec therapists, what they're doing is really linking people with challenges, but also things that they love that help them work towards their goals because I am working right now on a study with folks at the Salt Lake City VA and my collaborators there designed a study that involves, we created a six session mindfulness intervention to help older veterans who have post-traumatic stress disorder. And we said, either we randomized them, either you're going to get these six sessions delivered indoors at the Salt Lake City VA, or you're going to get it outdoors at this gorgeous arboretum. And What's really interesting, and it's a really small sample size so far, we've got like around 15 or 20 veterans in each group, so not really enough to get statistical significance on the many mental health measures that we're looking at. And we're measuring everybody before and after each of the six sessions, and then also one month after these interventions end, and we're running multiple cohorts. So we're just a few months in. But one of, I think the most significant thing that we found, and this relates to what Tommy was just saying, is that... We can't keep people in the indoor group. They don't want to come. They're like, I got better things to do. There's just not that much fun for me. They're not saying that, right? What's happening is they just don't show up. Like attrition in that group is massive. And they cannot keep people in this group. But the outdoor, the Arboretum people, they keep coming back. And that's really important because one of the big Problems that you have with veterans specifically is getting them to show up to treatment. There are so many things in military culture that push against seeking help and seeking healing and acknowledging weakness or vulnerability or pain. And so, there's so many things that are so hard for veterans and for service members about seeking mental health treatment. And so, to deliver an intervention that has mental health benefits, a variety of benefits, but to do it in a setting that doesn't look like treatment, that might be, I'm just here in this arboretum with my peers, is I was really connecting with what Tommy was saying, which is that if you can connect somebody with something that they like, they're more likely to do it. And that's what we're seeing in this study with veterans. That's awesome.
1: Joanna, when I was at Bradford Woods, part of my role there was family. I worked with the family and military department and we ran some programs with the wounded warriors project um, and did these odyssey groups where they came out and stayed with us for about eight days and they were either all male all female or couples and we also did family battle buddies which was a family program kind of reintegration after one of the parents had had served and then come back reintegrating using some different programs and and yeah it's like being in that setting the outdoor space using climbing things that kind of relate back to experiences that a lot of our veterans have used the camaraderie is another component of it too, being with other veterans and in those outdoor spaces is certainly a great conduit for some of those things and to guide folks in and, and keep them motivated because as in wilderness therapy and, and so many of us in the therapeutic world, our folks need to be motivated to be there to reap some of those benefits. And that's what I love about it is being able to tap into kind of these strengths and these desires that people have, because that's when your free time, you, you do what is authentic to you, or we hope that we can, right? That we do these things that we love to do. That's what leisure is and and free time. And we are, get the capacity to lean into that for folks to help them achieve new things or get back to something after an injury, rediscovering something or finding something new.
0: Joanna, how do you find research projects for people who are looking to pursue their doctorate or looking to, maybe they're a facilitator or a program manager who wants research (laughs) on their program. How do we connect those people and how do you find research projects or find a researcher who could do research on your project?
2: Yeah. So there's a, I hate to push Google because they have all the marketing they need. They don't need me, but there's a a platform I really find helpful and it's free and everybody can use it, which is Google scholar. So Mm -hmm. it's a scholar .google.com. And that indexes all of the peer-reviewed articles and books that it can scoop up in the entire world. And what's helpful about that is that I don't need to have access to any specific library. Lots of people, once they graduate with a degree, they don't get access to that institutions, library databases anymore, Google Scholar is free. And lots of times you'll run into a paywall. You can't read the whole article, just the abstract, but you certainly can get a sense of what work is being done on a topic that you have interest in. And so very often if I'm trying to do just not a deep dive, but just a quick survey, who's looking at this thing that I'm interested in? That's where I start. It's just pulls to search engine only for the scholarly literature. Who's doing research on something? And so I think that's a really useful platform for people who don't have access to research databases or all the tools that I have being connected to a university. That's a good place to start. But I also think for people who are interested in research, I began my research career by looking into things that had confused me or confounded me as a field staff. And right now I sit on the admissions committee for our doctoral program. Our strongest applicants come in with research questions. I worked with this population and I want to understand X. I don't get, we designed this treatment so carefully for, why didn't it go off the way we thought it would? Why do all these people drop out? Why did these people get so angry when we did this thing that we were trying to help them? Whatever it is, people that come in with questions that they want to explore through research, those are people that I think are likely to be successful. They have something they want to understand better. And that's a great place to start a research project.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the strong things about AE as an association is that we have researchers and practitioners within our community. And at places like the conference and our roundtable calls, you can talk to a researcher. You can be a camp counselor who is wondering why their kids are, you know, not getting more uh, self-respect during their program or not doing the communication skills. And you can talk to a researcher and either find out what the research is or start a research project. So I think that's one of the great things about our community is we work to connect those folks together because... We have an amazing amount of research in experiential education over the last 50 or more years with how it works. <laughs> it really works. And Joanna, and I think as editor of the Journal of Experiential Education, you probably see a lot of that research. And as a member of AE, that journal is available to you. So you can also get all that research there, all the past issues of the journal. Yeah, um, Sherry, I, can I yeah, add okay. on to
1: that a little bit? I think- Yeah, uh, those are great points. Having a question, and a lot of us who work in kind of the therapeutic world, we, we're we're curious about those things anyway, right? We're evaluating things. And once those questions come up, when you start to get a desire to explore them more, that's when we say, yeah, come learn more, come study more on these methods of how to figure these things out. But I think your and how do you arrive at that, I think A.E. is a wonderful place. I remember early on in my master's program, before I was even thinking about going on for a PhD, going to AEE. And being able to sit next to people who I was reading about, being able to just walk up to Jim Sipthorpe, be like, hey, this thing you wrote about camps, can, can you tell me more about that? And just have access to those folks in a way that's so wonderful. So walk up and ask the question. If you see their name and they're presenting, go and then linger at the back of the room and ask them about things is a, a great way to navigate those. The other thing that I'll mention, and I think Joanna, Google Scholar is even my students in research methods, we start there. It, you know, sure. If you want to start at Google Scholar, that's a great place to cast a wide net, and then we can start to hone in on some things. But it can, uh, especially for our practitioners who are working under, and I know all of them are saying, we just don't have access to these things, right? From an ability to get at these things in a privileged position or folks working in these really underfunded programs, and then to have to like financially afford access to some of these databases is difficult. But I will say this, ResearchGate is another program that you can use. ResearchGate is a academic Facebook in a weird way. It's just a place where you can go. The cool thing about it is if you sign up for an account, you can email people who have wrote things directly and ask them for papers. So I've had people message me on ResearchGate and say, hey, I, I'm interested in this paper you wrote. Will you send me a, a copy of it? And a lot of us people who have wrote papers uh, are happy to share some of that information if you just contact us. And I know that they exist in in journals for for a reason, but sometimes you can reach out and make contact. And ResearchGate is a is a good way to see some things and an easier way to access. So not only can you search things on there like you can't Google Scholar, but you also have the ability to then email the authors and explore more or learn more potentially.
0: Thanks, Tommy. It's good information. You mentioned access, and I think that's such an important part of our community and and making sure people have access to this research because researchers do all these studies, and they could have all this great information. And if folks don't have access to it, then it doesn't help grow this these methods and this idea of wilderness therapy and recreational therapy and adventure therapy and experiential education as a, a means to making the world a better place. That access piece is so important.
2: Yeah. And I, I will also share it to build on what you were saying yeah. about the conference being a place that really can connect practitioners and researchers. I'll say that as a researcher, I love talking to practitioners because it's doing research in a void, in a vacuum, and just in an academic setting. Who is this helping? Like, And so to be able to talk to practitioners and say, hey, here's what I found what do you make of this? Or how do you understand this thing? Or what application do you think this has to your setting or the people you work with? Or is there any way we can use this to in your setting? That's the most fun thing that I do is to make that link from, can you help me to understand how you help me to make meaning of this? And every time I present my research at conferences, somebody asks something and I think, wow, I never thought about it that way. (laughs) Like I didn't, I didn't have the same frame of experience that you did. And I didn't know how to interpret this. So many of the times people will say, why didn't you do this? And I'm like, why didn't I do that? That's (laughs) that's a great question. Yeah, so it's so wonderful for me as a researcher to come face-to-face with practitioners and they always illuminate something new about what I'm doing and help me to map it onto actual practice. What does this mean for what somebody is actually doing in the field?
0: Yeah, And back to Tommy's thing about, and both of you about talking to the people that you see published at the conference. And when this podcast airs, we'll have just finished the conference. (laughs) Everyone who's listening, you'll have to wait till next year's international conference, which will be in November of 2024. But we have AE rock stars. They're the people who at an AE conference are like, Swarmed by people, and people want to talk to them. Anywhere else in the world, they wouldn't be. (laughs) Nobody would know who they were. They can go to the coffee shop; it's fine. But at an AE conference, they are the person who was just published or or has done this amazing research. But yeah, it's just such a great community where you can walk up to those folks that you've been reading their research or their book in your class, and then there they are in the flesh, and they're just regular people (laughs) who will be happy to talk to you. Like, Joanna, you're the editor in chief of the Journal of Experiential Education. That's a big title. And people can come up and say, hey, why'd you do this? So (laughs) it's awesome to have that access and that ability.
2: And I really hope they do. I really want to encourage people who are listening to this. If you're a student, you're an undergrad student, and you have a small research project you've been doing for a class, and you think, I I don't want this to just die here. I want to do something with this. I really encourage you to reach out to a mentor or the teacher of that class and say, how do I actually get this published? And if they're not supportive, then reach out to me, because I, one of the missions of the journal is to publish new and diverse voices and people who may not have thought that the journal or experiential education or outdoor spaces are a place where you would be welcome. I want all of those voices to be welcome at the Journal of Experiential Education. And so for people who have small projects they've been working on or projects that they're working on in school, I really wanna encourage people to reach out to me if they're not sure, how do I get this into print and what should my, I'd be delighted to pair you with more senior scholars who can help you develop it flesh it out and try to get it into print in the journal that's something i'm really excited to do
1: yeah absolutely and just second everything you just said of course but just in terms of that practitioner to academic world is a, a an issue right we, we can live in these silos we can just talk to each other and live in these kind of heady spaces and i hated research the, my first research methods class was with steve simpson and we were reading aristotle and i thought this is silly I just want to get out in the field and do archery and do cool stuff and tell people like do cool things. And then as I started learning more about it, I thought, ooh, we need more research. We need to know why archery is awesome and why people love it and how it has this capacity to help people grow. And what is it about nature that's so restorative and and people feel so connected around? So those questions led me there. But in recreational therapy, we have the same problem. We have a, a lack of evidence and research. So we've really been trying to push folks for that a relatively small field. So one thing that we've done at the University of wisconsin La Crosse is we had this call as our field needs more evidence-based practice. So we also had a need to redesign our graduate curriculum. About five years ago, we started a dual degree program. So students can take a couple graduate classes while they're in undergrad. They go off and do their internship and come back and do a one year long master's program, which is awesome especially with how expensive school is, being able to move through that and get a graduate degree is, is really wonderful. It was hard for us though, then to manage graduate projects and potential theses and all these different things. So we said, let's maybe mold a couple things together here. So let's do a capstone where students create an evidence-based curriculum. And then let's publish these things online for free on a website so practitioners can download them and access them. And then maybe we can do some research on it later on. That's what we did. we developed this evidence-based curriculum website. Our graduate students typically we have between eight and ten that come to and graduate a year and they all develop these evidence-based curriculums. They're typically around six to eight weeks long. they're around some particular modality for a particular population it may be adults with developmental disability and cooking it may be mindfulness and gardening for older adults and it's a play-by-play curriculum of how to facilitate these programs for recreational therapists. There's a training video and then this fidelity manual that tells you how to teach it how to lead the program, how to facilitate it with assessments and the whole kind of shebang. And that all lives on the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse's website. So if you go to search up our department in recreation management and recreational therapy and go to our recreational therapy website, you can see this evidence-based curriculum website. And that's all free. And we presented it at a couple of our conferences. And that's what we're trying to do is integrate this. So if a practitioner is out there and they want to get into doing some stuff, they can download one of these curriculums, run it work with us as faculty members, because we have access, we have time for these types of things. And then we can study the results that they send back to us and help further these programs. And all of our students who create these curriculums are working with their internship coordinators to develop that program specifically for those internship sites. They could certainly be used at other places, but they're working directly with the place where they did their internship. Most of them, some of them go off and try another setting, but for the most part, they're working directly with the place where they did their internship. So that kind of gives back and is a way to help develop this connection between practice and research in a really practitioner-oriented way to help drive some of that. So that's kind of one way we've been trying to address it where we've seen a need for it in our field.
0: That's awesome, Tommy. That's like the, the citizen scientist projects where the scientists have everyday citizens go out and do stuff and then they take the research from it because they can't be everywhere. So it's great to get all that information and provide a resource to practitioners and facilitators thanks for sharing that's awesome We're gonna move out of the professional realm a little bit still within the professional realm but you both described your connection with nature what benefits do you feel this connection with nature has for you personally and then also professionally how to use that connection
2: yeah I just got off a river trip. I'm still sunburned. So I'll I'll start by saying that. I just, it was my children's fall break ended Monday night and we were on the flat water stretch of the Colorado River for four days. So I will say personally that I feel calmer, better, happier when I'm outdoors and particularly when I can see just gorgeous landscapes. The space that we were in was deep red rock cliffs and just we saw eagles and we saw great blue herons and it was stunning and sunsets and eclipses as well yeah oh was <laughs> it did you see the do you see it in uh, saw the, the fall- thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. And because we were on a river trip, I was saying this to somebody, we had nothing to do but watch. It's not, I couldn't be like, oh, I got to go into a meeting. I got to go right, like, right. do laundry. I had nothing. To, we just sat there. We watched the thing. It was awesome. So I, I would say my personal connection to nature is that I feel better when I'm in it. And I'm enormously privileged living in the West to have access to these gorgeous, enormous swaths of public land. And I'm a girl who grew up in Boston. So where I grew up was not like that at all. And so I still, even after 20 something years in Utah, feel so privileged that I get to have access to these enormous parks and swaths of BLM and Forest Service land where it's just, you can just go. But I also am really interested in how nature is a healing environment for all kinds of populations. One of the projects that I'm really excited about right now, one of the research projects is finishing up a meta-analysis looking at how nature exposure impacts adults with mental illness. And so I've spent three and a half years working with really uh, almost entirely a volunteer team of undergraduate and graduate students coding. 14,000 articles looking at adults with mental illness or symptoms of mental illness who had experienced nature exposure. And so after a very long process and a whole lot of articles, we ended up concluding that nature exposure, even as little as 10 minutes, and even urban, not just wilderness, really has a measurable impact on adults with mental illness and also adults with symptoms of mental illness, somebody who has some symptoms of anxiety or some symptoms of depression, and who isn't a little bit anxious or depressed after the pandemic that we've lived through as a world. I'm so excited by what we found because I think it has significant implications for not just those of us in healthcare working with populations who have mental health needs, but also Beyond that, people who are experiencing some mental health distress know that if you go out into a park in your area and you sit, it doesn't matter whether you're running or sitting or walking or painting or gardening or whatever you're doing. That's what our research found. Doesn't matter what you're doing, that being in a natural space for a minimum of 10 minutes and can be in an urban environment is going to improve your mental health.
1: I can't wait to read that. <laughs> So I think what it means for me is, I grew up in Southern Ohio, right on the Ohio River, and dad worked on the barges. He was a deckhand and then a pilot later on, so driving uh, big old barges full of coal from Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and out on the river all the time. So that turned us into kind of river people, and I remember distinctly as kids, we would wait. Mom stayed home with us three kids for a lot of our early childhood. And on Friday afternoon, we would have our little 18 foot speed boat hooked up to the trailer, cooler packed, tent loaded, and just sitting there waiting on dad to get home with the truck. And we'd hook up the boat and go straight out to the river and just camp all weekend long, just on on the river. We upgraded boats a little bit as as time moved along and we stopped sleeping in tents. But it was just such a a common part of our experience. We, We just did those things. We hiked and cooked over fires. In Shy State Forest, which is just a, a beautiful spot in Southern Ohio, we went skiing at little snow trails, I think is what we call this little mountain, ra- this little uh, mountain, is a that's a stretch, this little hill in hill. Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, we didn't have a, a lot of money growing up, but my parents really privileged those experiences. So we would, we would pack lunch and we would stay at a travel lodge miles from the little resort and we would eat uh, our little peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the lodge and just really like... Being outdoors and together was such an important experience. And I know, I think that mom and dad, I know that they love doing those things. I don't think that they were thinking, how do we instill an outdoor ethic in our children? I think we just play and that's just what we did. So for me, it's a very integrated part of my identity. And as I got older, that kind of went away a little bit when I first went off to college and I got into hanging out and working and sitting at the bar, being a classic Midwesterner and got away from some of those things when I came back to it, when I went back to school, when I started hiking again and getting back out and camping and skiing, it was so much easier to find my path when I went back to those types of things. For me personally, it's such a a deep-seated thing. It was just a a natural part of our experience as a family and something that me and my partner, Nicole, still do today. We were camping this weekend. We found a little cat who had his leg injured. So now we have have a a three-legged cat. (laughs) But we cross country ski and we're just, we mountain bike and we just do all the things. We we joked, I bought a mountain bike last year and I just got into mountain biking with a goal. She said, well, that's as good as an engagement ring there. That's a commitment, right? To buy a mountain bike, (laughs) to go mountain biking with somebody, those things are expensive. That shows some commitment. That's what we do. We just go, we go out and we play and we practice yoga and we just love being outdoors. So it's a natural part of my friendships and my personal relationships Professionally, it's just profound. The camp experience is just wonderful. A lot of the, when I first started working with folks with developmental intellectual disabilities, they spend their lives indoors so much. And when they show up at camp for that one week, it's Disneyland. It's the height of their year. I can remember distinctly this gentleman got out of the car when I was working at Camp Winnebago in Minnesota and I said, how you doing? And he said, back where I belong. It's just like profound connection to to the space and these beautiful settings. They were just so wonderful and such a driver for some of those things. And I think Joseph Sachs wrote in Mountains Without Handrails, which Steve also pushed on to me, is a a lovely book that talks about how important these natural spaces are, particularly around like the big wilderness spaces and their capacity to, to inspire all, which inspires contemplation and allows us to be engaged rather than occupied in these spaces. And in that book, he's often referring to these national parks, right? The power of the Grand Canyon to inspire all and how that allows you to feel small and, and contemplate life and how powerful that is for growth and authenticity. But I think we can find these things when I walk down the road here and walk to the Mississippi river here in La Crosse or look up on the bluffs. A lot of times we think of these big, wonderful expansive spaces and they certainly have the capacity to do that. And we're so fortunate to have some of those spaces, but I think in the minute, in the small, we can find all also in our day to day and it's can be so powerful. And just seeing those, those camp settings and those therapeutic spaces and how people can relax and sit around a fire like we've been doing for thousands of years and just share stories and feel connection. I think that there's something really special about that.
0: Tommy and Joanna, thank you for sharing with me today. This has been a great conversation. We could go on and on, I'm sure. <laughs> we missed some of the questions that I was going to ask, but we went down some other paths which were very appropriate and great and, and so good to hear from you. I look very much forward to seeing both of you soon. Again, once this podcast comes out, we'll have had the conference and have spent some time in Wisconsin and in Madison, and that will be so much fun. But thank you again. And thanks to everyone who's been listening to this episode of It's in the Experience. We do this every month. So you are welcome to listen to episodes each month. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And you can find more about experiential education, including wilderness therapy and recreation therapy and adventure therapy, information about our upcoming events and research, the journal, all kinds of things at our website, aee.org. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Joanna. Appreciate you being here.
2: Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Sherry.